Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and it's my distinct pleasure today to welcome Susan Lee Johnson to the podcast. Dr. Johnson is the Harry Reid Endowed Chair in the in the History of the Intermountain West at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. Uh, Dr. Johnson won the Bancroft Prize in 2000 for the book War, Roaring Camp and is the president-elect of the Western History Association. We'll be discussing Professor Johnson's latest book, Writing Kit Carson, Fallen Heroes in a Changing West, which came out in 2020 from the University of North Carolina Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Susan. Thank you so much, Steve, for having me and just for doing this podcast. It's so good for those of us who, uh, who do work in this field. It's it's my pleasure. I love uh, being able to talk with people about books books in this field. Um, and uh, if, if if you've if you've been listening to the podcast, then 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 you know that I always like to begin by just hearing a little bit about the guests themselves. Um, which, for reasons that we'll probably get into later on in, in the episode, is particularly important for a book like this one that that you've written here. So, can you just tell us a bit about how you became interested in history and your background as a historian? Sure. Um... You know, it was really the history of the West that first grabbed my attention. I grew up in Wisconsin, not in the West at all, or maybe an earlier West. Um, But I had a chance when I was in my teenage years to travel to Montana. I had a great aunt who had a, a, a summer place there and just absolutely fell in love with the landscape and the history. And then in college, uh, some of the very first courses I took were in the history of the American West and American Indian history. And I was hooked. I actually thought I was gonna be an elementary education major and I finished that major uh, with a minor in history um, because I wanted to teach history. But the more I took the history courses, the more I, uh, I, I just got more deeply hooked and quick in my senior year finished up that, that history major. And uh, that's what I've been doing pretty much ever since. I did work for a few years between my uh, master's and my PhD in scholarly publishing, but otherwise I've been doing history for a good long time. And what path did you take to writing this book in particular? Why a book about Kit Carson, or I guess maybe maybe more accurately for this book, why a book about other people who write about Kit Carson? Well, we have to start with Kit Carson because that's where I started. And I envisioned myself writing a book. Um, I, I should even backtrack a little bit more here. My book, Roaring Camp on the California Gold Rush, is a kind of social history influenced by cultural history. But I used a lot of personal documents, letters, diaries, reminiscences, court records. But I always felt like I was just dipping into people's lives for you know, a day or a week or a very short period of their lives. And um, just wasn't really getting the, as a historian of everyday life, wasn't really getting at the texture of everyday life as it changed over time for people. And so with, with Kit Carson, I thought, well, why not do something more biographical? And what interested me in Kit Carson is, uh, less what has in, what had interested historians in the past and more his intimate life because he, um, you know, he was born in 
Kentucky did that kind of classic migration really as an infant from Kentucky to Missouri, followed the Santa Fe Trail uh, to New Mexico in 1826, and then uh, worked in the fur trade, uh, was a trapper and a buffalo hunter. But through all that, uh, he married first a Northern Arrow woman in the 1830s. She died uh, after a few years of their relationship. Then married a Southern Cheyenne woman who I don't think liked him very much. That, that only lasted about a year. And then he married into a prominent Northern New Mexican family, an Hispano family, the Jaramillo family. And those kind of inter-ethnic, interracial, intercultural relationships, um, whatever you want to call them, that's what interested me. Because it seemed to me that what Carson was doing, I, I like to say he was marrying power. He was marrying into communities uh, where people still held sway over their own geography of residence. So Cheyennes and Arapahoes were very powerful peoples on the central uh, plains in the time that he married. And uh, you know, we, these uh, prominent Hispano families in Northern New, New Mexico also uh, maintained their power, uh, not just before the US conquest, but even after. And I thought, why not use those relationships as a kind of window on the transformation of a, south, of an, of a geography that had been you know, indigenous homelands, the Mexican North, and then became the, the American Southwest. So that's what I thought I was doing. And I did maybe a year or so of research on that. And in the process, um, I knew that there was a, a librarian named Quantrill McClung from Denver who had produced a genealogy of the Carson family and also a couple other interrelated families, the Bents and the Boggs. These are also men who came down the Santa Fe Trail, married either indigenous or Spanish Mexican women. So, uh, and I found that she had left all of her papers to the Denver Public Library when uh, when she died, she had worked there as a librarian, as a young woman. And I thought, well, I should look at those papers. Maybe she found something that would take me longer to find on my own. So I dipped into those papers. I didn't really find reference to any primary sources that I couldn't have found on my own. But what I did find was a correspondence between this woman, Quantrill McClung, who was a retired librarian, and another woman named Bernice Blackwelder. And it was a 30 year correspondence, um, maybe I forget, maybe 300 some letters. And I realized that the woman she was writing to, this woman named Bernice Blackwelder had published a kind of a popular biography of Kit Carson called The Great Westerner. They both published, McClung published her genealogy in 1962. Uh, Blackwelder published her biography in 1962. And I thought, well, this would make a nice little article. I could write an article about these women who were not trained as historians, um, but you know, who were amateur historians writing about Kit Carson and actually paying much more attention to his intimate life than male his historians uh, before them had, uh, had done. 
And um, I actually wrote that article and I never published it because it left so many questions unanswered, so many roads untraveled. And uh, I just decided, well, I'm gonna write a little book, a little book about this. Um, I now call it my little big book because <laughs> it just grew and grew and grew. And so that's kind of uh, how, it, how it came about. And for those who, who don't yet have a copy of the book, uh, it's, 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 it's slightly larger than, than a little book, I would say. <laughs> it's, it it's, is. It's sizable. It, when I first took it out of the box, when it arrived in, uh, last fall, I've actually got a picture of myself looking at it with this, this look of dismay. I knew it was long, but, um, but I will say there's a lot of footnotes. There's a lot of illustrations. Um, it's not quite as long as it looks. No, and and you know, well, I'll I'll go back to the the questions that I wanna I wanna address in a second, but it's also an incredibly readable book as well. I mean, uh, the 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 prose, it just it just it really flows, and it's also one of the most well uh, cited, well sourced history books I've read recently. That yeah, there's a lot of really fascinating citations in there as well. So that helps to 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 add to its to its 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 size as well. Thank you. Um, so. And this kind of gets at my next question because in many different ways, this is sort of an unorthodox history book. And I personally think that, that that's one of its many strengths is that it's not like a book that I have read before in a bunch of different ways, especially for an academic history book coming out with an academic press like this. Um, th that also makes it somewhat harder to discuss than the books that I usually cover on this show. It's it well, in part because this book takes, one of the unorthodox approaches that it takes is in terms of its narrative arc. It doesn't really follow a straight line. Uh, uh, it doesn't really follow a straight chronological narrative uh, by any means. So I guess I'll just ask, why did you decide to take this particular path, this particular arc to writing this story? So I, what I wanted to do was to kind of give the reader a sense of how I encountered these women. So I met them through this correspondence that began in the 1950s and extended to the early 1980s. I met them as in, you know, I think I had a kind of condescending view. Oh, they were kind of little old lady historians. You know, isn't that, isn't that interesting? Um, but as I read through the correspondence when they started writing in the 1950s and 60s, Kit Carson was, you know, certainly not to all Americans, but to many Americans, sort of a, a frontier hero. And that's who they were writing about. They were writing about him in a, a somewhat different way than other historians had because of the emphasis they put on his intimate life. Um, but that changed and it changed uh, mostly in the, in the early 1970s where the reputation, not just of Kit Carson, but of so-called frontier heroes like this began to fall from grace. And they were continuing their work in Western history across this period. And they also, um, except for a very brief time in their uh, lives, they lived in different cities. So they conducted their relationship all by letter and they became closer and closer friends over time. At first, they just started as kind of collaborators. They were sharing research findings and um, things like that. But over time, they started writing about all aspects of their life, lives. And by the 1970s, as figures, Kit Carson himself and figures like him began to fall from grace, they wrote to each other about that. Like what was going on? This. Um, you know, this guy who they thought was, you know, worthy of book length treatment 
was being called a genocidal maniac and many other things. And they had to make sense of that. So that's how kind of how the book goes. You kind of start in the 1950s and 60s when they're writing their, their first books and are pretty enthused about, uh, about Kit Carson into the 1970s. Um, Quantrill McClung produced a supplement to her genealogy, her Carson Bent Boggs genealogy that was actually, the supplement was longer than the original book. And meanwhile, her friend, Bernice Blackwelder, her second project, which she never finished, was what she called a biographical dictionary of Westerners. So it was gonna be a kind of a reference work where you would look up, um, you know, Charles Bent and there would be a little entry uh, about him. Um, so they continued this work um, and continued talking to each other about what was happening to these figures that to different degrees they had somewhat revered in, in the past. That's sort of where I started, but then I started to find more and more sources about their lives, not just their letters, their published work, but things that they had saved from their younger lives. So Quantrill McClung um, put together scrapbooks when she was in her mostly 20s and 30s. Um, Bernice Blackwelder kept a diary. Mostly she kept photographs and things like that, but she had a diary for five years in the early 1940s. Um, and all of these sources just opened up a whole nother world and, you know, completely challenged my kind of condescending view of them. And I started to see them as, you know, people with pasts, people who came to this history um, along these different paths. And, and so, but I didn't wanna write it in that order because why would anyone care about these women if they didn't know what they did in their later adult lives? So I decided to do that. And I decided to do it because honestly, I had read a couple of novels that, that were structured that way, would started later and then kind of dialed back. So you didn't learn the backstory until later. And I just found them really engaging and effective. And I thought, well, why couldn't a historian do this? At the end of the book, I do go to the very ends of their lives uh, when you know, say the decade or so before they, they each died. So I do end with the end of their lives, but yeah. So that's, that's why I decided to, to do it in that order. And I, I feel as though historians have been talking a lot, uh, you know, both on, on social media and I've had conversations at conferences and things about how, uh, how to better write books in ways that, that play with form a little bit. And, you know, the sort of, the sort of classic, Form of the academic history book, it's it it works in many ways, but it's not the only way to to write about the past. And I think that your book really sort of, you know, it 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 waves a kind of flag as, as a way of saying, you know, th this is another way to do things. Um, exactly. So, and I, yeah. I mean, I I love a good history book that is structured in the traditional way, which is there's an introduction, there's four or five or six chapters, and there's a conclusion. In the introduction, the author kind of sets up, here's the historiography, here's what other historians have said about this subject, this is what I'm saying that's new, here's some background you need to know, and then you march through the chapters, which are, 
you know, often chronological, maybe topical and chronological, and then you get to the end. And some of my favorite books do that and they do it very well. But there are times when I'm feel, I feel like I'm reading the same book over and over again. They're about different topics, you know, and I just thought, why not try, try something different? And, you know, the form of a, 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 a critical biography or kind of life writing also, I think, allows you to do that because people's lives don't necessarily break down into into chapters, <laughs> you know, that way. I mean, I could have written it that way, but I chose I chose not to. Yeah. Before we get more into the story that you tell and the various uh, meanings that you draw from from the stories that you tell in the book, it might be worthwhile just to go over in a bit more detail some of the basics of the characters that that we'll be discussing. So you talked a little bit about who Kit Carson was, but could you maybe go into a little bit more depth about who Kit Carson was and why he he mattered in the sort of traditional mythic Western history sense? And then also talk a bit more about who Quantrill McClung and Bernice Blackwelder were. Sure. And if I forget and get go off on Kit Carson too long, just uh, <laughs> reel me back in. Okay. So I guess we got Kit Carson as a very young man. I think he was 16 or something down the Santa Fe Trail in 1826. And uh, in the early part of his life, he didn't kind of keep going up and down the Santa Fe Trail. He was really involved in the fur trade, trapping beaver, uh, also hunting buffalo, um, and it was in this period that, uh, you know, he married this uh, Northern Arapaho woman who he met at one of the fur trade uh, rendezvous where, uh, you know, trappers and indigenous people and traders would meet every summer to uh, exchange their wares. Um, and somewhere in this time, he made the acquaintance of John C. Fremont, the government explorer. He also became a guide on three of four, uh, of Fremont's four Western uh, expeditions. Um, and as the fur trade kind of started to wind down, he was working as a hunter at Bent's Fort, which was a, a, along the Santa Fe Trail, one of the routes of the Santa Fe Trail, uh, and was a trading, uh, trading fort that uh, Arapaho and Cheyenne people frequented awful, often. And that's when he met, uh, the uh, Southern uh, Cheyenne woman uh, and married her. He didn't like her, uh, or she didn't like him much, didn't last long. Um, but at this point, he, uh, he starts to gravitate towards New Mexico. He, um, he is uh, named an Indian agent for Ute and Apache and uh, Taos Pueblo people. And it's during this period that he marries Josefa Jaramillo, who comes from a, a prominent Northern New Mexican family. She's about almost 20 years uh, younger than him. Um, you know, eventually he, uh, as the Civil War bega begins, he joins the U US, the Union uh, Army, he fights in the Un Union Army. He's uh, probably most well known for his role in the dispossession of the Diné, of Navajo people, um, because he was the soldier who led the expedition into Navajo country in the 1860s and uh, that ended up with what's known as the Long Walk, where Navajo people were taken from their Four Corners homeland to uh, reservation land in, in, eastern, uh, in eastern New Mexico. Um, so that's kind of 
who he is. I mean, there's there there are so many moments in Western history there. I mean, he was that he was involved in. I mean, he, I think we can think of him as sort of an agent of U.S. empire, sometimes wittingly, sometimes unwittingly, but also someone whose you know intimate life was tied up with the the peoples of of the West. Um, but even in his lifetime, he became a, a, a sort of folk hero. Hero. He, was, he became a character in dime novels, the cheap fiction that especially white working class men read in the middle of the 19th century. And um, so he became a figure in, in dime novels, but also um, Jesse Benton Fremont, who is married to John C. Fremont, um, met him, uh, really loved him for the work he did uh, helping and guiding her husband. And she wrote about him uh, a fair amount. So people started to hear his name. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a household name, but it was getting pretty close. And over time, he became one of, I mean, I guess there's more than three, but I think of kind of a trio of white Western her heroes. So Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, Kit Carson, there are others, Buffalo Bill, uh, Wild Bill Hickok, et cetera. Um, but he, you know, so he is both, I, I, I like to say in the book, he has both a life and a half-life because he exists in popular culture. You know, eventually he becomes a, a character in television shows, movies, uh, et cetera, too. So that's kind of who, uh, who Kit Carson is. And I think these two women, Quantrill McClung and Bernice Blackwelder, were attracted, attracted to him, felt that he hadn't quite gotten his due. Why they thought that, I'm not entirely sure, um, but they thought he hadn't gotten his due. And Quantrill McClung, who was uh, sort of self-trained as a genealogist, she had been a, a, a librarian at the Denver Public Library and often fielded people's questions. Uh, so um, descendants of Kit Carson would, you know, contact uh, the genealogy division there and asking questions. And she realized, you know, no one's really done this genealogical work. And so in her retirement, she uh, took it on herself. Um, Quantrill McClung's life followed a, a more, a less meandering path. I mean, she was, she was born, lived and died in Denver. She never lived anywhere else. Her first job was with the Denver Public Library. She retired on disability uh, fairly young, um, but then continued to, uh, to do this kind of work and to use the resources of the Denver Public Library. Bernice Blackwelder is a whole other story. I mean, she came to write a biography of Kit Carson in the 1950s, published it in the early 1960s, but that was a huge departure for her. She had been born in a small railroad town in Kansas, she uh, went to college, uh, she, of the two of them, she's the only one who went to college. She went to college in Western Kansas and uh, pursued a career in music. She was a singer and she taught for a time in a small uh, college in Missouri. She taught voice and coincidentally that put her very near 
the, the boyhood home of Kit Carson. And that's where I think she probably first heard of, of Carson, but she, she didn't do anything with that knowledge. Uh, she moved to Chicago. She married another musician, a fellow named, her name, her uh, name before she married was Fowler, Bernice Fowler. She married a fellow named Harold Blackwelder. And the two of them spent uh, really all of the 19, 20, late 20s, 30s, and early 40s as musicians in Chicago. They sang on the radio. They sang um, at live events. Um, they, this was their life. They lived the, the, the life of, of musicians putting gigs together um, until really when television started to take off and radio started to be you know, less important, they did not make that shift from, uh, from radio to television. And then they had to figure out what to do. They were not well-to-do people. Um, uh, her husband, Harold Blackwelder, her, his, he was from North Carolina and his father had run barbecue restaurants. And so he decided that's what he would do. So he did that for a while and she worked alongside him. Um, but eventually they moved to Washington DC and for a short time, a couple of years, I think, Bernice Blackwelder, for the only time in her life, except when she taught voice in Missouri, had a regular job and she worked for the CIA. And, you know, this put, you know, increased her appetite for investigation, but also put her near the resources of the National Archives. And it was in this period that she started to uh, think about writing about Carson and started to, to, to do the research. So that's kind of the basic trajectory of their lives. Uh, the Blackwelders eventually left. Um, they lived in suburban Washington, DC and in, in Virginia. They moved back to Chicago and lived there for many years. They were managers of apartments. Um, her husband kind of gave up, had given up the music business, gave up the restaurant business and worked as a clerk in the county uh, records, just filing traffic reports until he retired. So that's kind of who they were. Um, very the two women were very different from one another. Um, Quantrill McClung was also about a dozen years older than Bernice Blackwelder. Uh, McClung was born in 1890, Blackwelder in 1902, and they both died in the 1980s. And what about the works that they, they produced, their respective books on Carson? Uh, you mentioned uh, a little bit, but what books did they write? And then how were they received when they came out in the kind of early 60s world are of, I think you called in the book, Car, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not pronounce this right, Carsoniana, correct? And, yeah. and Western history more, more generally. What was right. sort of the, their initial, the initial reaction of the history world to, to the work that they made? So I, I think it's different for each of them. Um, Quantra McClung, I mean, I call her a historian, but she was really trained as a librarian, happened to get an appointment at the Denver Public Library after working there for many, many years as a, a genealogical librarian. And that's how she learned about genealogy. It wasn't something she meant to do, um, but 
you know, she retired and she produced this genealogy. Now, I mean, most people have seen a genealogy before of a family. I mean, you, you open the page and they're kind of all these names and they kind of go down the page at an angle as people marry and have kids and the next, that's what it looks like. Um, and it covers uh, the Carson family going back to, um, well, they were Scots-Irish, not so much back to uh, their European origins, but you know, from the time of, I don't know, a couple generations before Carson, um, you know, all the way up to the 20th century. So that's, and there was very little narrative in there. Um, she did the same thing for uh, the Bent family. The, the, these are the Bent brothers who ran Bent's fort. Uh, William Bent uh, uh, married an indigenous woman. Uh, Charles Bent actually married the sister of Josefa Jaramillo who married, uh, married Kit Carson. He became the first US governor of uh, New Mexico, although he was, um, he was murdered in, in a, an uprising against the US conquest in um, 1847. So, she published this genealogy and then a supplement to it about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years later. Um, her work was well regarded by historians who cared about the history of, of the fur trade or you know, other aspects of Western history that um, Carson was involved in, but it wasn't the kind of work that would necessarily get a review in a journal or even a popular, you know, uh, magazine or, or newspaper, but it was well regarded. Um, Bernice Blackwelder uh, did get reviews, both in academic uh, journals and um, to a certain extent in the popular press. And it was, it was fairly well received. Um, unfortunately for her, Another woman who was also an amateur historian published another biography of Carson the very same year, a woman named uh, Marion Estergreen. And the two of them were kind of um, rivals and did not like one another. Um, so uh, that's what they published. Um, but it, as I discuss in the book, they were doing this work at a moment when Western history itself was changing as a field. So, you know, people talk about the professionalization of the field of history. They go back to the late 19th century. Western history is kind of a special case. As a field, it didn't really professionalize the way other fields did anywhere near as early. So some of the most popular Western history that was written in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, was written by amateur historians, most of them uh, white men, um, most of them non-academics. There were certainly some academics, but these men organized themselves into a group that still exists called the Westerners. It started in Chicago in the 1940s, spread to many other uh, US cities and states and even to uh, uh, places in Europe as well. Uh, it was an odd organization. Each city had its own corral or posse. Um, and these were the buffs. These were the Western history buffs. Um, and it really, it wasn't until 
1962 that the, the more academic among these historians formed the Western History Association, so a real academic organization. But there was a lot of um, intermingling between these groups. Uh, the Westerners, almost all of these corrals and posses were gender exclusive. They did not allow women to be members. They, women could be corresponding members, but they couldn't actually be members. They might get invited to a, a ladies' night event once, once a year. Um, so these two women, Quantrill McClung and Bernice Blackwelder, were doing this work in this context where it was really the amateurs who were producing most of the work on the West, but they were mostly men. So they could not have joined the Westerners. They could have joined maybe one or two um, uh, chapters that were not gender exclusive, but, uh, but not the places where they live, not uh, Denver and the DC area. Um, so, they, they had the advantage of whiteness, but they had the disadvantage of being women doing this work. And they had to kind of negotiate with these guys and write them letters and, you know, try to get their help or support. Um, and then as Western history professionalized, they started to pay more and more attention to Western history scholars. They realized that their work was gonna kind of rise or fall on the attention or lack of attention that professional Western historians paid to them. So it's, it, it, you know, sort of a sub story in the book is the history of Western history as a field. Um, and which is, you know, has, looks in some ways like other fields, but also has its own weird, weird peculiarities. And as a Western historian myself, who has uh, attended the WHA on several occasions, I thought that, that that section was completely fascinating, especially seeing, you know, the changes to the field of Western history, you know, through, through the, the lens and to an extent through the eyes of, of these two women was really, it was, it was really fascinating for me. I really appreciated that, that part of the book. And even, even more broadly, uh, both Blackwelder and McClung were caught up in larger changes to political and social life in urban America in the 1960s and the 1970s in American cities during this, this era. How did, what were these changes and how did they respond to them? You talk in the book about, you know, they're writing letters to each other about what they see on their own blocks in their own cities. What, what were they saying? Right. So um, I would distinguish between the two of them. Um, Bernice Blackwelder um, lived in a couple of different, at least a couple of different places during this time. She lived for a while in suburban Washington, DC. She lived in Chicago. She lived for a very short time in the uh, Denver area as well. But Washington, DC and Chicago were the main places. When she lived in the late 50s, early 60s in suburban Washington, DC, you know, this was the era when city suburb relation, relationships were kind of, uh, you know, that post-war period where, um, uh, you know, federal, uh, you know, mortgage assistance, uh, whether through the, the GI Bill or FHA uh, mortgages were, kind of, you know, creating the suburbs and, um, 
and leaving the inner cities, uh, particularly to, to people of color. So for a very brief time, the Black welders were never um, very prosperous people, but for a very brief time, uh, while um, Black welder worked for the CIA, they actually owned a home in a Virginia suburb, uh, first in Arlington and then in Alexandria. So they were part of that kind of white movement uh, to the suburbs. Um, Quantra McClung uh, lived, uh, she lived with her parents uh, much of her life, but after they died, she always lived in one or another apartment in downtown Denver. Um, when the, the black welders uh, couldn't make it in DC and moved back to Chicago, they moved to a neighborhood called the, the Logan Square neighborhood. And that is a neighborhood that had once been quite a, a prosperous area, but had really become a, a working class um, uh, neighborhood. And it's a, also a neighborhood that became more and more Latino. So Puerto Ricans, ethnic Mexicans, a few Cubans started to move into this neighborhood and uh, the black welders were not happy about this. So even as Kit Carson is falling from grace and being seen as this agent of US empire, they are also living these racial changes and they are not happy. Bernice Blackwelder is not happy that Kit Carson is falling from grace and she's not happy that she's living in a neighborhood that is becoming more and more mixed um, racially. They lived in apartments, they could never have afforded to really live anywhere else. Quantrill McClung is a little bit different story. The neighborhood she lived in in Denver, uh, Capitol Hill was changing, but not quite as much as the neighborhood that Blackwelder lived in. And McClung, I mean, it's hard to tell, but my sense from her letters is that she was less up in arms about racial change. She didn't like, she didn't like young people and hippies who just didn't dress very well and had long hair and walked around barefoot. And she didn't like it that small shops in her neighborhood were closing down and she could only go to like a supermarket. There were things she didn't like. She was a very opinionated, um, but she didn't have quite the racial resentment, I think, that the Black welders had. So I try to weave in their ideas about 19th century history with what's happening in their day-to-day -day lives in, in these cities. And you mentioned a moment ago that, that the, the sort of, uh, what's, what's we're looking for? The, the mythos around Kit Carson is starting to change at around the same time period. How, there were, there are a couple inciting events that you talk about in the book that sort of begin to knock Carson off of his pedestal somewhat. How, how is the, the perception of Carson, both among historians and the general public changing at the same time that, that, that these, these women are experiencing changes to their own cities too? Right. So, I mean, you know, I have to say right off, it's not that everyone, um, uh, you know, felt endeared to Kit Carson all along. I mean, he had been, you know, persona non grata in the Navajo Nation for a, for a good long time. But in the general kind of uh, white public, you know, he was, you know, seen as, you know, one of the founders of, you know, the, the nation in, in the West. So, um, one of the first things that happened was kind of a small um, event. Um, 
but it reverberated a little bit. And it was at uh, Colorado College, which is, um, I'm talking to you from Denver today, just an hour um, south of me. And there, a, um, I, I think there was like a campus ROTC or something. And there were a couple photographs of Carson that were mounted there and a new uh, uh, anthropology faculty member, um, Shirley Hill Witt, who's one of the first, maybe the first um, uh, uh, American Indian woman anthropologist who had a PhD in anthropology, saw this and uh, wanted them taken down. And um, it started a controversy at Colorado College, partly because the main Kit Carson scholar of that era, a fellow named Harvey Carter, um, was also at Colorado College. So the two of them got into a war of words that, you know, kind of went into the school newspaper, eventually, you know, was broadcast um, larger than that. But that controversy you know, people heard about it, but it was mostly historians because, because Harvey Carter was very, very upset about uh, what Shirley Hill Witt was saying about his beloved uh, Kit Carson. And he actually wrote a, a very angry article about it that was published in one of the Westerners publications. So these, you know, these kind of the, these, the, the older amateur historians uh, uh, published kind of journals and he published it in that. And many Western historians kind of came to his, his defense. And I found his papers are at, the, at Colorado College and I found letter after letter from some prominent, some less prominent Western historians just kind of saying, you know, you did right to uh, to criticize uh, to criticize this uh, indigenous scholar. Um, so that was kind of a smaller controversy. But then down in Taos, so uh, Kit Carson had lived in Taos, and there was a, a city park there, uh, the Kit Carson Memorial or State Park, I think, Kit Carson Memorial State Park, and uh, a group of activists from. Uh, the Mexican-American Civil Rights Group, the American GI Forum, uh, got together. Uh, that's a, a group that started in Texas in the post-war period, but it was really newly formed uh, in uh, northern New Mexico. And they got together and they just decided, we don't want this park named after Kit Carson anymore. That Kit Carson is also buried there along with uh, a lot of other prominent people. And they proposed that it should be renamed for um, uh, a man from Taos Pueblo, an indigenous man from Taos Pueblo who had uh, uh, been taken prisoner of war and died in World War II. And um, he was on the Bataan Death March. And that controversy, that really blew up, not just in New Mexico newspapers, it was written up in the New York Times. And, um, you know, folks just started shouting at each other about, you know, who Kit Carson was and who ought to be honored. I mean, we, we think now that the contemporary controversies over monuments are, are new. No, this has been going on for a very, very long time. Um, these activists, they were, uh, they were largely Hispano, they were largely ethnic Mexican people from 
New Mexico, there were some indigenous people uh, involved and they were unsuccessful, but they were unsuccessful in getting the, the name of the park changed. And every few years, there'll be a new controversy about renaming the park and it hasn't, no one succeeded yet. Um, but uh, then, uh, you know, that really broadcast the, um, uh, the controversy. Historians started writing about it. There are a lot of kind of Carson, uh, you know, apologists for, for Carson started writing about him. And, um, you know, this is just Kit Carson. The same thing was happening, you know, about other figures in Western history, but Carson is the one, uh, the one I've paid attention to. And then you begin part two of the book by jumping back in time, uh, earlier into the lives of, of, of these two women. And can you tell us a bit, you, you mentioned, you gave sort of a thumbnail sketch of their, of their lives earlier, but can you tell us a bit more about their, their earlier lives? What contexts shaped them, uh, helped maybe to lead them to an interest in the mythos and the history of the American West and, and to Carson specifically? Right. Well, I'd, I, again, I would distinguish between the two of them. I mean, they, they both, interestingly, you know, grew up in railroad towns. You know, Denver was a real railroad hub. Um, Brookville, Kansas, which is where uh, Bernice Fowler was born and grew up, was a uh, just a small kind of uh, railroad stop on the Kansas Pacific and then the Union Pacific. But they very much grew up in a kind of recently recently colonized and recently connected West, uh, a West that had been connected, you know, place to place and also to, to, to the East uh, by railroads. So they are both uh, very much Westerners, but different kinds of Westerners. Um, Quantra McClung uh, grew up in a, in, you know, Denver was not the city it is now, but it was a you know, it was a real city and, um, and you know, fairly, fairly diverse. Um, uh, Bernice Blackwelder grew up in this tiny railroad town that is, I've gone through the census as far as I can tell, there was maybe one African-American family there for a short time during the time, time she grew up. So, um, you know, that influenced sort of who they were and how they thought about the West. I think, you know, Quantrill McClung never left Denver. She became a librarian. Um, she, the West for her was just home. Uh, Bernice Blackwelder couldn't, kind of couldn't wait to get out of Kansas. I mean, she left, as I said, she taught voice for a short time in Missouri, but she was headed for the big city. Uh, and the bright lights and, you know, um, light opera, uh, radio shows, um, you know, she was, she was gone. And it really wasn't until, you know, her, her career and that of her husband in, in the world of music kind of dried up that she had to find another way to go. And uh, she knew a fellow, a man who was considerably older than her, but she had met him through her father when, when she was young. He was a lawyer in Kansas who just, who 
who so loved Kit Carson that he is literally buried in that park in Taos. You can go visit. He, he is buried next to his hero. And it even says something like that, you know, on the gravestone, buried next to my hero, Kit Carson. Anyway, this lawyer, his name was John McCurdy, um, just loved all things Carson. And he didn't write, he didn't write history, but if he would learn about someone who is doing a Carson project, he would help and encourage and sometimes even subsidize their research. So um, at some point, um, Bernice Blackwelder was married to, um, uh, to Harold Blackwelder, but before she married him, um, you know, she had met John McCurdy when, when, they, when she was very young, but when she uh, met him again as, as an adult, he started to court her. He wanted to marry her. And uh, she thought he was kind of an old man. And also he was actually still married and he was Catholic and she didn't think he could get a divorce. But they, uh, you know, they had this ongoing kind of flirtation and he just, he was her suitor. He just would write to her and write to her and she just, she, she wasn't interested in him. But they also talked a lot about Kit Carson. They took a trip to Taos with uh, some other folks from Kansas and um, it kind of lit a fire under her in, uh, you know, an interest about Carson. And she just returned to it in the 1950s. And this guy, John McCurdy, who, you know, never got to hook up with Bernice Blackwelder, but still remained her friend, um, did partly both encourage and subsidize. I don't mean subsidize like he wasn't like a patron or anything, but, you know, would give her a little money to get some typing done or something like that. Um, so, uh, you know, it, but she didn't start doing that work until the, until the 1950s after living a very, uh, a very full life. Um, and uh, so they, their lives are really quite different. Um, you know, Bernice Blackwilder married, she never had children, I think, I'm not sure, but I think, uh, I think she couldn't have, or they, she and her husband couldn't have children. Quantrill McClung never married. Um, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out sort of what her intimate story was. Um, uh, as far as I know, she was never even engaged or anything. She seems to have had um, intense relationships with, uh, with other women librarians, whether they were intimate relationships, I really don't know. She seems like someone who enjoyed her own company most, most of all. Um, at one point, I thought I had found a boyfriend, uh, a, a suitor, and I'd even written it up that way in the book. And then I realized he was a cousin and that I had mistaken their, probably mistaken the nature of their relationship. So I do a lot in the, uh, in, in the book looking at their intimate lives and how the history of their intimate lives affected how they thought about Kit Carson in his intimate life. I mean, there's a lot of people looking back and forth between the centuries, 20th century people looking at the 19th century past, trying to make sense of it, but being influenced by their own 
upbringing, their own experiences and their own sort of current circumstances. And McClung and Blackwelder have a really, uh, I think, pretty, pretty wonderful uh, friendship. Um, and I'm wondering how did the two meet and what role did their relationship to one another play in their, in their lives? So they actually met through this fellow, John McCurdy, who just seemed to pay attention to anyone who was doing work on Carson. So, you know, he had known Bernice Black, Bernice Fowler, then Bernice Blackwelder since she was a child and, you know, knew that, uh, knew of her interest. And I don't actually know how he knew that Quantrill McClung was doing this genealogical work, but at some point he, he did find out about that work. And he told them, you know, you two really should be in touch with one another. So their relationship started when uh, Bernice Blackwelder was living in DC, Quantrill McClung was living in Denver and Bernice Blackwelder sent her a letter, got her address, sent her a letter and said, I hear you're doing this project. You know, I hope that we can, you know, be in touch and help one another out. And I actually reproduced these first two letters uh, as an illustration in the book. And Quantrill McClung wrote back and said, you know, yes, indeed. So that's how it started. And they were very formal. It was like, dear Miss McClung, dear Mrs. Blackwelder. Um, and at first they just exchanged you know, I mean, Quantrill McClung had access to the resources of the Denver Public Library and the Colorado Historical Society. Bernice Blackwelder had uh, access to the resources at uh, the National Archives. And so they would just send information, not so much documents, but kind of, okay, I went and I looked at this and this is what it said. Um, you know, we got no internet. They rarely talked on the phone. so. Thank goodness, as a historian, that I have all of this in writing. Um, but over time, of course, they started, as people do when they get to know each other, just sharing more about their lives. For a very brief time, uh, the Blackwelders um, actually moved to the Denver area. Uh, they lived here um, maybe, I forget, maybe three years or something. So for a very brief time, they lived in the same metropolitan area and they would go to the library together and Harold Blackwelder would take them to, you know, maybe meet a, a descendant of, of Carson. So they had a brief time that they shared, uh, in, you know, where they actually get to see each other and go out to lunch and whatever friends do. Um, but then uh, the, the Blackwelders uh, moved uh, back to Chicago. So the rest of their relationship was really all by letter. There are a few references in the letters to phone calls, but I think those phone calls were very infrequent. Um, and they were each other's main support um, in their work, for sure. I mean, they each had other, other close friends, but in terms of the work, the historical work they did, they were each other's uh, main, main support. Um, but, you know, as I said, they started uh, sharing much more over the years, like they, they had been friends, they had been introduced by this fellow, John McCurdy, who, who so loved Carson that he's buried next to him. Um, but Bernice Blackwelder didn't tell Quantrill McClung that, that John McCurdy had courted her until they had been friends for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. So it was like this secret that she kept and then she she revealed to her friend. Um, so 
um, you know, they, uh, they were crucially important to one another. It's kind of hard to think of them continuing with the work they did the way they did without uh, the support of one another. And what about the final years of their lives? How did their lives end? And then looking back at the arc of their lives from your vantage point today as a historian, what meaning do you draw from them in the book? And, and as, as, as a historian, what, what sort of uh, lessons or, or I guess meanings is the word I'm looking for. Can, can you draw from these stories? So um, Quantrill McClung is always the easier one to explain. She stayed in her Denver apartment. She, um, she had been in poor health really off and on uh, through her life. So she retired quite young in her 50s, I think. Um, her parents died in the 40s. She had lived with them and she, had the, uh, she sold their house. So she had a pension from the city, the proceeds of the house, um, by the time before she died, she was very much running out of money. She lived very frugally and things got really tight at the end. But she stayed in that apartment until, I don't know, the last months of her life. Uh, she was in a nursing home in Denver and nobody uh, talked to people who knew she was there and heard she wasn't doing well, but um, you know, nobody really knows exactly what happened. She lived into her 90s, though. She, uh, um, so, you know, and she did a lot of this, all of this genealogical work after she retired. In addition to, I focus on the work she did on the Carson Benton Boggs families, but she also did a major genealogical project on the families of all of Colorado's governors. So she didn't publish that in book form. It was published in the Colorado Genealogists kind of piece, piece by piece. But if you ever want to know anything about the genealogies of, of uh, Colorado governors, um, you know, she's the person who did, who did all of that work. Um, Bernice Blackwelder is a really different story. Uh, the two of them continued living in this kind of dark, dingy apartment in Logan Square. Um, uh, they um, really never had enough money. Harold Blackwelder wanted to, didn't much like his job for the county, um, wanted to retire, but you know they couldn't afford it. And meanwhile, their neighborhood was changing more and more, um, becoming more and more uh, Latino. They weren't happy. They tried to move to North Carolina, which was, uh, 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 Harold Blackwelder's home state for a short time. That didn't work out, went back to Chicago. And finally, um, uh, Bernice's brother lived in Northern Michigan and um, he never quite approved of the marriage, never thought, didn't think Harold was much of a provider. And he just said, you have to move up here to Northern Michigan to be near us in your declining years, which they did. Uh, had a small apartment. Harold died before uh, Bernice. Bernice went into an adult uh, foster care, lived for a couple of years, uh, and then and then she died. And through all of this, until they moved to Michigan, she kept trying to finish her biographical dictionary of Westerners, and she never finished it. And her niece, um, who was kind of how I got, her niece had all of her papers and 
eventually turned them over to me. Her niece told me that uh, Bernice burned the diary, the, 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 the dictionary, the biographical. So, so she worked on it for, I don't know, maybe 20 years. And then she just gave up and burned it. And uh, that, that just hurts my heart. <laughs> Having taken 20 years to write this book, if I'd gotten that close and just, yeah. So she burned it. She saved, it's interesting because she saved all the stuff from her music career, all the headshots, all the, you know, programs from musical performances. So that part of her life, she wanted to remember, but, um, you know, the, and, and of course she saved her published book, but that big project that was going to be her next big and last big thing, she, she just had to give up on it. So, and what do I think of it? What do I, what do I make of it all? Um, what I make of it all, it, you know, I guess I'll say first what I don't make of it. What the book is not trying to do is to recover these women as, you know, sort of unfairly forgotten major historians. They were minor historians, but it is in that minority that my, that my interest lies. Like, why, you know, what was it like for women to navigate the world of amateur history in the field of Western history that was so dominated by uh, male amateurs? Um, you know, what did they do when the focus of the, the subject of their research, um, public opinion of him started to shift so gradually? How did their so when we think about historiography and we think about how people write history, we think about the larger historical context in which they were working. So we think in the Cold War, you know, how did Cold War historians write about the Civil War, the Revolutionary War? So we think about the larger context in which people write history. What we don't do so often is really think about the day-to-dayness of how people write history and how those daily lives both enable and disable the knowledge we're able to produce. Um, so, you know, it mattered that Bernice Blackwelder was watching Kit Carson fall from grace as she was living in an urban area that was becoming more and more diverse. Um, you know, she kind of figured herself as being victimized by the Latinos, you know, because she says crime was increasing, they couldn't go out and walk their dog anymore. Um, so, and that's also when she looked back to her own family, because she was interested in her own family history. She had roots both in New England and the Chesapeake. And she had a couple prominent um, uh, ancestors who, had been taken captive by indigenous people, including Hannah Dustin, and I forget the 18th century guy's name. But you know, she would write about her own family's history saying the Indians were after us on all sides, you know, and she was writing it at the same time as she was feeling, you know, kind of victimized. Some, now I should say, sometimes she would say, oh, Harold, Harold doesn't like living here because he's a southerner, so, you know, he's in some of these, you know, 
some of these Puerto Ricans, they are quite black. So, you know, and so she kind of put it off on him, but it was clear that she felt some of the same things too, uh, as a West, you know, a former Westerner rather than a Southerner. So, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of being negative about Bernice Blackwelder here um, and about things that I should be negative about, but she's also a fascinating character. I mean, here's someone who studied music, who had a full music career, who gives it up, who works for the CIA and then decides, I think I'm gonna write about Kit Carson. And she was not some rich hobbyist who, um, who is, she was a woman of very limited means who just kept reinventing herself um, until she just couldn't reinvent any anymore. Um, so, so I guess that's what, that's what I think, um, you know, and I think we as historians, you know, if I was going to write about these women and how they thought about Kit Carson, I realized we as historians have to think about who we are and what we bring to the work uh, to the work that we do. So the book does some of that too, as I'm reflecting on what they, how they're understanding Carson and both the larger historical context in which they're doing that and also the daily lives, their own you know, quotidian lives where they're doing uh, this work, I realized I had to be a character in the book as well because I was doing the same thing to them or with them that they were doing with Kit Carson. So that's sort of another, another layer of the book. And as I see it, not just how, how knowledge is, is created by historians, but also in the case of Blackwelder, how and why knowledge is not created. I mean, when you were when you were explaining that just then, I couldn't help but think, you know, what were the circumstances, the 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 day-to-day -day circumstances that led her to make the decision to burn her, you know, what you might right. call her life's work, because she makes that decision based upon I mean, who knows why, right? But but part of it was was probably the fact that and I'm completely just speculating here because this is interesting to talk about, but you know, maybe part of it was that she felt as though she was this kind of outsider to this world of history. Right. So she felt as though her work did not have any kind of worth and it was then worthy of destruction too. So yeah. Right. I mean, and then, and, and, and the fact that men like Carson, who, I mean, and, and all, she burned her biographical uh, dictionary, but she wrote enough about it to, to um, McClung that I can kind of figure out who was in and who was out. It was all men and it was all white men. The only non-white man who I found who seemed like he was gonna get an entry in this was Jim Beckworth, the uh, African-American you know, fur trapper. His, his life was too much like the lives of people like Carson for her to exclude them. But she was doing this work as you know, these celebrated heroes were not celebrated so much anymore. And she was trying to do it while managing apartments, while taking her husband back and forth, you know, uh, to work. And she did it on a kitchen table. So she would, you know, do things in the apartments, you know, give people keys and, you know, deal with broken plumbing or whatever just get her work out on the table, 
work on it a couple hours. And it was like, oh, it's time to go pick Harold up and cook dinner because Harold, you know, he, he could cook barbecue, but he didn't do the daily cooking. Yeah. 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 So, so there, there's, there's one question I always like to ask at the end of my, my interviews and some of my guests have, have kind of, you know, expressed that it's maybe a frustrating question, but I think it's, I think it's an important one nonetheless, uh, especially since, you know, uh, one of the goals of the new books network is to present uh, work by historians to uh, a broader public who might not always encounter uh, the, the, you know, history work written by professional historians all the time. So if there's one takeaway, just one takeaway that you hope readers come away from this book with, what might that be? It is a very, very hard question, but I think what matters most to me is that both historians writing history and people reading history think about who we are when we produce this knowledge. Who, you know, someone else would write this book or would write the book I wrote about the California gold rush very differently than me. Um, both based on the larger, you know, historical context in which they're working, but also on their kind of individual life path, their experience of race, of gender, of sexuality, of class, what have you. I mean, I don't mean to just kind of hit on the, the, the usual categories, but they matter, they matter. And um, I think that historical objectivity is not what it used to be. And that we need to, I believe in historical objectivity, I, know, I believe we need to uh, try to reconstruct the past as best we can with the materials that have survived to us. But we are also, we are always that person as we encounter the material and it always shapes the questions we ask and the conclusions we draw. And that we should be open about that. We should not try to hide that because it's there whether we acknowledge it or not. So that's why I'm a character in the book. That is why I think so much about who these women were when they were trying to produce knowledge about Kit Carson. Yeah, I mean, history is fundamentally about people, both the, the, the people in the past who are, who are you know, typically no longer uh, uh, actors today and the people that are doing the reconstructing. I, I, I firmly agree with that, yeah. Um, and as you mentioned before, uh, this, this book was 20 years in the making, so it almost feels silly to, uh, to ask you this question, but I always like to get a preview of whatever my guests are working on next. So is there a project that, that, that you're working on now that this book is, is out and on people's bookshelves? Yes, uh, and I'm very excited it, uh, uh, about it. I, I felt kind of adrift. Part of the reason this book took so long is there was so much 20th century history in it and I really wasn't trained as a 20th century historian. So it felt like every 10 or 20 pages I was trying to read another historiography. So I was sure to kind of get the context right. But I'm returning to the 19th century and it is in some ways a little bit of an offshoot from this project because what I'm interested in is how the Santa Fe Trail, which between the 1820s and the 1870s connected Missouri, um, you know, different jumping off points in Missouri and uh, Northern New Mexico and particularly Santa Fe, how this trading trail, and it really was more a trading trail than a trail of immigration, how it connected two very different worlds of slavery and coerced labor. So, 
the black chattel slavery that we're more familiar with in Missouri and points east. And then that whole world of indigenous captivity and enslavement that characterized the borderlands. So indigenous people trading people back and forth, uh, uh, Spanish Mexicans in New Mexico, purchasing indigenous captives, using them as uh, workers in their homes and their fields. But the Santa Fe Trail literally connected those practice, practices and um, enslaved and coerced laborers traveled the trail. So, you know, enslaved black people traveled the trail uh, going to New Mexico. Um, uh, uh, indigenous captives traveled the trail going the other way. And, you know, we historians talk a lot about, you know, trying to find these connections, say, between the West and the South or between this and that. And this is literally a highway that connected these practices. So it's again, a, I, I do history of everyday life. It's really about the life of these people along this, this, this trail. So it's a project that connects these different forms uh, of slavery and then emancipation along the Santa Fe Trail. It sounds like exciting work and uh, hopefully it doesn't take 20 years, but if it does, I'll have you on the show again to talk about it in, in 20 years. <laughs> I, I, I hope it doesn't take, I don't think it will. Yeah. Susan Lee Johnson is the Harry Reid Endowed Chair in the History of the Intermountain West at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and is the author of Writing Kit Carson, Fallen Heroes in a Changing West, which came out just last year with the University of North Carolina Press. Thank you so much once again for joining me today, Susan. Thank you, Steve. It's just been a delight.